0: He's the CEO of Expedia Interaction Marketing Group and the call center geek himself, Tom Lear. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Advice from a Call Center Geek, the call center and contact center podcast, where we try to give you some actionable items to take back in your contact center, improve the overall quality, improve the agent experience, improve the customer experience. Today, we're going to talk about improving the financial health of your BPO. Uh, My name is Tom Laird. I'm the CEO here at Expedia Interaction Marketing. We are a 500 to 600 seat call center outsourcer located in northwestern Pennsylvania. I have a very special guest with me today. Um, There's really two ways you can come on the podcast. Number one is now you can sponsor an episode. Or the second way is I think that there's just so much value to bring to a lot of the listeners and and viewers that are on either TikTok or LinkedIn or, or on YouTube that, you know, it's, it's almost me asking for for you to come on. So with me here is Eric Kraft. We've been talking about this episode for a really long time. Eric is a partner with Common & Company. They are in an M&A firm that really specializes in the niche of, of BPOs and, and contact center operations. He's done some really cool and unique things when it comes to benchmarking your call center. Now, when we talk about benchmarking, I'm going to let Eric here talk about this a little bit. But we're not talking about service level and handle time and, and, and your average speed of answer. You know Those type of metrics, while important for specifically for BPOs, our financial house needs to be in order as well. And and Eric has some things that they've done from a, a huge benchmarking survey um, talking about the actual financial piece of, of BPOs, um, what you should be looking for, how to set your books up um, and, and some of the really interesting things I think that we can get from from some of the data that they've. That they've they brought forward so eric thank you for joining how you doing buddy
1: everything's good you got a double geek on the episode today I, uh, our firm and yours uh we've been in the contact center business a long time matter of fact uh my partner richard comet uh his call center ran polling for the original uh, uh president roosevelt the first one and uh <laughs> nice. jeff cohen on our team was actually the finance manager so we've been in a long time and a lot of history there In all seriousness, uh, no, Richard came from a background of being a contact center owner, sold his uh, contact center back in 99, got into the transaction business. He and I met, I actually looked at the calendar the other day, he and I met 20 years ago and I was working in a contact center in Maine and uh, he brought me on board and here we are today. We're seven advisors deep, have a high specialty in contact centers and BPOs. We used to be on the phones, Tom. So we know a lot about the pain and the pleasure of the contact center world.
0: No, I appreciate that. And and I think, you know, talk about just quickly, and, and, and I know there's some other things that we want to discuss as well. But, you know, again, focusing on the financial aspect of the BPO, just can you give just a brief kind of overview as we start this thing of, of what some of the things that we're going to talk about today, what you're going to present some of the things that you guys have done?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, in our industry and in our practice of working on transactions, mostly sell side, we, we mostly represent the lower middle market owner and lower middle market would mean anything between, you know, four or 5 million and let's say 40 million of transaction value, you know, the private closely held company uh, domiciled in the U S uh, we look at so many different things about those businesses that we uh, felt like it was a, our obligation to share some of the data. Uh, with the people who are out there, you know, like you, practicing in the business and trying to grow, you know, sustain and hopefully profit from the industry. And, you know, the last
0: time you and I were together, we were we were in Vegas um, at, at Call Center Week. And, and, you know, you and I, we had a long discussion over a couple of pops over, uh, you know, really t- trying to add value, right? Add value to the industry as a whole. What were some things that, you know, from, from a podcast standpoint, I mean, that's kind of why we do what we're doing. I think what we're about to present to everyone here with some of the things that you've done, um, you know, you're not out here to sell anything. The the actual data that I think you're about to present can add a ton of value. I mean, I have been kind of scouring over it um, and, and looking at my books and kind of benchmarking kind of what we're doing off of the things that you've done. Um can you just kind of, I guess, talk about that and, and kind of what was the the thought behind you know putting this this forecast together or this this kind of benchmarking survey together? And, and you know, what what do you see or was there anything that kind of surprised you before we get into the data?
1: You know, a lot of this <clears throat> information has never been published. I mean, to our knowledge, um, you can get industry information if you scour uh, you know publicly traded companies, but as far as the privately traded companies in our particular vertical, the, the information has yet to be published. And I think it's important to put it out there so that, you know, the owner can understand, you know, on a benchmark perspective, how he or she uh, are doing relative to their peers, right? If you go to buy a stock, let's say Apple, right? Any good brokerage uh, software or app will show you what their peer groups look like. You know, for so, so for Apple, it might yeah. be you know, Google or Microsoft or something like that. Um, And you can kind of compare the the various analyses behind that and determine which is the better investment, right? Now, if you're Apple and you look at your peer groups, you can kind of figure out, hey, what do I need to do to improve to better my situation and hopefully, you know, beat my competition? So when the information we're putting out there, it's fairly simplistic, yet it'll be new for a lot of people to look at and say, okay, how am I doing relative to either my peer group or industry as a whole? And I think that's ultimately what we're shooting for. You know, Tom, years ago when I first got out of college, I uh, was flying every week to a territory that eventually I got sick of flying, and, and I hated it. And my roommate at the time was a private pilot, and he suggested that I take flying lessons to get over my fear of flying. So when you learn how to fly, they teach you, you know, VFR is the first, which are visual flight rules. And then you eventually you learn IFR, which instrument flight rules, right? So you learn how to fly with your eyes and then through the instruments. Now, I never get this far in training because I <laughs> kind of continued my fear of flying. But eventually, when you before you become a licensed private pilot, you have to fly the plane without looking through the windshield, right? Just rely on your instruments. But yep. a pilot will never be as effective without both tools right? You need your feel and you need your data. And I think what we're trying to do is give people both their feel and their data at the same time and give them some best practices on how to put it in place so that they, you know, again, thrive, grow and prosper in what is typically the largest venture or asset of their professional careers.
0: Yeah. And, and I think the, the other importance of this is so many of us call center operators are really good at the other metrics, Right. We're really good at, you know, making sure our service level and our workforce management and our shrinkage and, and staffing and you know all of those KPIs that that we go to judge. And I, I kind of liked what you said, you know, when it, kind of during our pre-call is as a BPO, when you go to sell, not that that stuff's not important. Right. But it's definitely not the, the priority of it when somebody's actually looking at your books, how your books are set up, how things, you know, from that standpoint in um, those KPIs. Right. That a lot of times, not that we don't think about them, but. You know, as an operator, you when you operate, you think of that. and You don't really a lot of times think of that that kind of back end piece.
1: Yeah, when you go to see your doctor when you're sick, he doesn't ask you how much you bench press or how fast you run, right? He's see. looking at different metrics. Now, both of them combined might give you a full picture of the health of the patient, right? But one without the other won't give you the full picture. So I think what we do is we see you know, a lot of the under the hood financials on really what takes a dollar of revenue and then subtracts everything down to what profit, right? How does a firm create profit from revenue, right? Which is ultimately the driver of entrepreneurship. You know, can you create profit? Now, how that happens in the contact center businesses, you know, relatively unspoken, right? If, if, if I were to ask you, you know, tell me the nine ways a typical contact center would drive profit, you might come up with a totally different answer than if I asked the next 15 people. Right. Right. We just don't, we don't study contact centers in college, right? No one majors in call centers and BPO's. Right. But at the same time, it is a business and there are certain elements of it that are common to us all. You know, this data, what we're basically trying to show is, you know, hey, understand how to analyze your data vertically and horizontally. And what that means is in one time period versus multiple time periods, understand how to analyze it, put it in place so that you run it alongside with operational efficiencies to drive a better business. So all the KPIs you're talking about, I mean, most of them are available in the software package that you run, right? I mean, it's incredible. I I remember the days when we had to handwrite orders in contact centers and they would have a whiteboard and put up the abandonment rate, the close rate, the average talk time, all of those things. And they were all manually done. Now the KPIs, the operational KPIs are everywhere. And they're readily available. They're instantaneous. You know, I'm certain at a, some point it's a bit of confusion, right? But the, the finan- you can't have a holistically, I think, you know, growing profitable call center without the aggregation of both strategies. You have to have your operational KPIs, but you have to marry them with financial metrics, which ultimately would determine a successful firm.
0: Yeah. And, and I would also argue that I think that this is more valuable than benchmarking as a BPO, benchmarking those other kind of operational metrics, right? Because there's so many variables that come into play. With the variables, there's there's still a lot of them, but they kind of do narrow down. And I think that this leads more towards benchmarking, which we've I've never really talked about. I've never seen this data. So do you want to, let's, let's, let's get into it. Let's, uh, let's look at, at some of this. So we have a couple of the, the slides. Now this benchmarking, let's just say this before I I throw this first slide up there, this benchmarking report will be available tomorrow or the next day on the, we'll have the website on the, on your, on the common company website, correct?
1: Yeah. It'll be available on gocomet.com with the download. It's, it's obviously free, no obligation. Uh, It's for the, you know, public usage, everything is anonymized. So, you know, there's no private confidential data that's going to be released. And, uh, you know, we hope people grab it, download it and use it to their uh, success.
0: All right. Let's throw this first, this one up here, which I thought was extremely useful and the one that I have been just kind of scouring over <laughs> over the last, you know, day or two that that you sent this to me. But why don't you just give a quick explanation of kind of what we're looking at and, and we can have a talk on this.
1: Okay. So this is a common sized income statement. So essentially, Tom, if you look at net sales, that's a $1, dollar, right? hundred. And as everything is subtracted from that cost of goods, material labor, it gets you to a gross profit number. So if you look at the first column, you're basically looking at half of the cost or absorbing cost of goods sold, half of the revenue. And then from there, you just could keep going down. And those are additional subtractions that get you to net income and then we'll talk about adjusted or normalized EBITDA in a little bit, which is really the operating statistic most used in valuations of uh, lower middle market contact firms, contact center firms. Um, the three columns we have 561142, which is the NAICS code for uh, telemarketing or other contact centers. Um, that data was uh, aggregated from a number of different sources. A lot of it was pulled from tax returns, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Again, anonymized. I don't want people to think that their tax return is somehow in the possession of Comet and Company. It is not. Um, The Comet subset is, um, again, an anonymized and uh, common-sized set of data that we've aggregated over the years. It's been weighted for recency. Uh, In other words, uh, 22 is going to be more heavily weighted than 21 and 20, et cetera. So that's fairly... Uh, up to date from the subset that we look at, and we look at again lower middle market firms that are privately held. That's five to forty million, closely held either by a you know sole proprietor or a uh, you know very limited partnership.
0: And and you have found and I mean obviously I'm probably speaking to the choir here, but you know benchmarking is so it the the numbers can get bigger or smaller, but the percentages are basically the same, whether you're talking, you know, lower tier or that upper tier 40 million ish contact center BPL, correct?
1: Yeah. And then the last column are public companies. So we analyzed three public companies in the, you know, kind of in our purview and then we just gave you, they don't provide all of the various breakdowns of their costs, but we gave you kind of the high level numbers of where they come in. Now this is called vertical analysis and how you use it is basically to measure your firm against peer firms. Um, if you were to look at, you know, on the far left, five, six, one, one, four, two versus public companies, you'll see some pretty big discrepancies there. Uh, those are made up of basically three categories. Number one are accounting policies or practices. Um, some things below the line or above the line maybe change when you get to a public company. Um, That will also include unprofitable firms, which we may not get a chance to look at because it's difficult to sell an unprofitable firm. Uh, When you get to the Comet subset, these are typically profitable firms, again, privately held, predominantly um, employing domestic labor to fulfill their services. And then the public companies are fulfilling their services through a combination of um, onshore, nearshore, and offshore Uh, employees.
0: I think the one one thing for me, Eric, that that stuck out and why this data makes total sense to me is again that comment subset as you and I talked about, it it did come very close to kind of at least where you know my contact center is, you know, and seeing that labor cost, right, from that first subset to the second. I mean, we know as BPOs by far um, you know, the the biggest piece of that that chunk of of expense um, or at least for sure, top line expenses is is that labor cost, and so seeing that at like that fifty two percent compared to the twenty four, based on on kind of the tax returns and those type of data, I think that made that really makes sense to a lot of people that are out there. I mean, that's that's the huge piece of of this pie um, t- to manage.
1: Yeah, it comes as no surprise to you that labor costs are a big part of your business. Right,
0: right, right. right.
1: Now, here is the question: What do you do about it?
0: Is that a question? Or-
1: yeah. in, in theory, if that's your largest cost and if we're understanding the economic headwinds that we've gone through since the, the pandemic, right? That's the number one concern, I would think, on top of most owners' minds or operators' minds, right? How do I sustain significant wage growth while my revenues don't grow at the same pace, right? So the answers to those are what? I mean, you've got a plethora of answers. Number one, you can be more efficient, Right. Number two, you can employ technology to reduce your costs. And number three, you can find lower cost areas to do business. Right. Now, forced when you're forced to make a decision on which one of those three you want to go with, I think everybody would say, well, I'm going to try all three. Right. Now, the last one, as far as moving business geographically, is probably, you know, has the longest tail to it. But if we just think about the first one, just operational efficiency, this is where the operational KPIs tied directly into financial performance, right? The more effective and efficient you are at answering calls at first call resolution at having, you know, highly qualified, skilled and trained people on the phones, right? The faster you're going to turn revenue into profit. So that's something we really want people to understand is not just benchmarking these numbers, But how do you apply operational KPIs to affect these numbers?
0: You know, the other thing, though, too, Eric, I mean, speaking BPO-wise, is is these are almost like dials. Like sometimes, right, if you do, I mean, frankly speaking for a BPO, if I dial down my labor costs because I'm using technology, a lot of times my sales will also go down. Now, granted, that that could correlate well for still bottom line, right? But I think that's the cool thing about, about looking at this and kind of seeing if I can't really increase my, you know, my top line revenue, you know, do I look at my labor costs, but, you know, there's that fine line as well of, 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 you know, kind of massaging both of those numbers to make sure that, you know, your, your bottom line almost
1: makes sense or is increasing. So the operational numbers, the operational efficiency is very symbiotic to the financial performance, right? Some of them are directly related and some of them are inversely, inversely related in the report. We actually talk about, if you answered every call in 30 seconds, you're going to be incredibly productive. You're going to be financially broke. Right. <laughs> right. At some point there is a break even there where you're not only efficient in meeting the needs of your customers, but you're profitable. And what we want to do is find that intersection between those items that are directly related and inversely proportional to where, you know, the performance of the firm is optimized. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And again, I don't, I don't want to go off because I want to keep you laser focused because I know we have a couple of really cool slides coming up that kind of take this to another level. Um, but again, as a BPO owner, and I'm speaking to all BPO owners because there's a question that just came in that I, I think hinting about what I was just talking about, how you know, technology, we can't fight the technology, right? There, there's, there's going to be some things that that maybe you know, overall. Um, Revenues may go down, but profitability may go up, um, you know, based on some of the newer technologies. And I think that's kind of like a that's an operational piece here that that it that does play into this um, that needs to be thought about. And I think, again, that's not a discussion for right now. But as, as everybody takes this back to their contact centers and kind of looks at some of these numbers, those are some of the conversations that that do need to happen because technology may decrease your net sales. It may decrease your headcount. Um, but there's some things that I think you can do as well, because we can't fight what's happening in, in the industry as well.
1: Well, yeah. And I just want to touch on that. You and I kick around AI all the time. Right. We we need to understand where the demand for AI is coming from. OK, it's not coming from the consumer. Typically, it's coming from the buyer of those labor costs. Right. If we look at the subset, we have 51.41 percent in cost of goods sold and we have another 13 you know, and change on the other side. So if you get, you know, 64, almost 65% of every dollar of revenue is going towards labor costs. So the people who are paying for those labor costs are demanding the AI, right? How can I lower my costs overall to not only retain or improve profitability, but also to deliver the client satisfaction that they're looking for, right? And then the end user satisfaction, the customer experience, I don't think we've seen the the ultimate solution there, but that's ultimately where the demand is coming from for AI and other technology solutions.
0: No, I, no, I agree with that. It's a it's an it's really an interesting time to, to be in the space. I think you know this report is is coming out at a really good time with this too, because again, with all these changes um, that I think you know we're going to have to embrace as as a BPO
1: operator. One thing I do want to note in an, in in these income statements. We don't have everything broken out as we would like it, right? I, I mean, I would love to see, you know, cost per agent, cost per manager, cost per supervisor. I'd love to see these ideal statistics, which I think ultimately is going to be our next research set. I mean, the other thing we don't have in here is IT spend per yeah. revenue, right? That's going to be fascinating to track over the next three, five, ten years, right? What does a center like yours spend in IT, you know, per dollar of revenue, going out the next five, 10 years, right? And ultimately, how does that impact profitability or performance? Now, those are the things that we hopefully will track as we continue to move this benchmark report down the road.
0: And I think anybody, any BPO that is, I don't say worth their salt, that's probably not the right phrase, but people and labor are by far number one. And then you know, technology really obviously is number two, whether it's your telephony platform, your analytics, your WFM, all these tools that are assisting agents. And now it's some of the newer AI technology that, that's coming out, too. So I agree that that should be something to, to, to look at down,
1: down the road as well. Let's flip to the balance sheet because it kind of ties into what we want to talk about there. So balance sheet, we've got assets plus our assets equal liabilities plus capital. Hopefully all of those tie into 100% you know, the contact center world today is far more asset light than it was even 20 years ago. Right. You remember those days when you had a closet full of wires and a guy you'd call when the phone didn't ring.
0: Right. Right.
1: Right? Now we don't have those things. So everything's gone into the cloud. Theoretically, you know, fewer assets that we need to own and keep on our books. It's changed to a subscription model. So, you know, the balance sheets have been really affected by that. And it shows in the difference between on the left is the private industry data and on the right is the publicly traded companies data. And you'll see kind of quickly the difference between non-current assets and you wonder like, why is that? Well, publicly traded companies have far more investments into either on-premise or proprietary technology solutions as well as real estate and then other investments they've made in acquisitions for growth. So that's kind of one thing that stands out. I guess we look at this and say, okay, how can I compare myself to a publicly traded company? Well, one thing for the small guy to look at is just look at accounts receivable and accounts payable or current assets and current liabilities. If you look at those two formulas, that ultimately is what they call working capital, right? Why is working capital important? Well, it's essentially the money that a business needs to continue operations. It doesn't belong to the owner. It belongs to the business. So let's say I have a new client and I'm going to build them a million dollars a month, right? Right. But they're not going to pay me for 90 days. Well, I've got 90 days worth of payroll that I have to pay every other week. Right. So the working capital is the difference between that money coming in and me laying the money out. Now, if you look at the difference in working capital between small companies, and big companies, it's really not that different. Mm -hmm. I mean, accounts receivable is pretty close and a payable is pretty close. And if you look at the spread, I mean, the private companies have a longer and a a larger working capital because, you know, frankly, we don't have the leverage to demand payment sooner than the bigger companies might, right? How does that affect the company during growth? Well, when you're growing, you're adding more working capital to your balance sheet. What does that require? Well, it requires cash. I mean, capital is, in essence, cash at some point. So where do you get the cash? Well, you can get the cash from profit, You can get the cash from debt or you can get the cash from new equity. But either way, you're going to need the cash during growth. So that's one key, really key benchmark um, number that we want people to take away from this and really understand is how does improved performance or growth impact working capital? And what are the things that I can do to positively impact that going forward?
0: I think one of the things that stood out for me on this, too, is and maybe it's (laughs) Looking at at my contact center and, and, and kind of looking at our books, Eric, do you think you would have seen a, a change? Like I know, you know, there was a lot of, of cash available, right? And and understand that PPPs and all that kind of went away. But even SBA loans and, and taking longer term type loans uh, from a long term liability standpoint, I mean, have you seen a, a change in that from from BPOs that maybe took advantage? I don't. know That's not the right term, but 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 really utilized what was available to them during COVID. Um, or it, you see that as just everything's kind of been kind of status quo with that, but it's just been a little bit of an anomaly here and there.
1: Well, obviously contact centers were dramatically impacted through COVID, right. And we had to send everybody home. Um, you know, we saw fortunately a, a majority of contact centers do the same, if not better. We saw an unfortunate minority go to zero, right. I mean, just depending on the nature of your client list and the industries you were servicing, it had a dramatic impact on uh, contact centers uh, in the U S and, and globally you know, from a debt perspective, you know, there's another big glaring difference between the two companies. If you look at long-term liabilities, that's that's in essence commercial or private debt. You know, the lower middle market companies really don't lean on a lot of debt. Um, most of the growth is through, you know, cash, through profit. If there is debt employed, it's typically either a real estate purchase or some type of minor acquisition. We don't have to buy the big, you know, on-premise solutions anymore. So right. what do you need debt for? Well, you can have debt for growth capital, right? That's important. Or taking out a partner or buying some more equity, et cetera. But then if you look at the publicly traded companies, I mean, they're, you can look real quickly. They're funding their growth through debt. Why mm-hmm. is that? Well, it's cheap and readily available. Right? Yeah, commercial, private, or in the case of the companies analyzed there, it's, it would be in the form of commercial paper or bonds. So without getting too geeky on yeah. the explanation they would rather fund growth through debt than equity because debt is less expensive for them long term than equity will be
0: yeah no that I, that totally makes sense and I, you know looking at the the biggest I guess growth piece is what you talked about right all of us are not worried but a, a something that keeps me up at night is is we do get that very large client that has you know the net 90 days the net 45 even. Right where you know you you have that 100 agents or you have that 150 agents for a smaller, you know under thousand seat BPO, um in, in in trying to figure out how to how to take that from most of the time from a debt standpoint, um lines of credit those types of things to to try to to, to try to finance that that is that's kind of the 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 scariest piece I think of of some of this too of of, of looking at these buttons to push,
1: when you get the call it says I need 100 seats and I need it to start next week.
0: Right. You're right. Right. It's the it's it's good the, problem.
1: the ecstasy, Tom. It's the agony and the ecstasy.
0: I mean, I'll take it. Uh, I'll, I'll figure right. it out. But still, I mean, there's things you got to work through with it for sure.
1: A hundred percent. And look, you know, strongest is the owner who has a great CFO, a great COO, great banking relationships, a solid CPA, and an understanding of the numbers, right? Th- those are kind of the, the, the pillars of growth. Right? Without those you're kind of going to be scrambling to, to plug all the wires in to figure out how it's going to work. Yeah. Right. Growth, growth is expensive, right. Regardless of how you do it, you know, understanding the implications of balance sheets and working capital to growth. I mean, is really paramount to growing responsibly. And then uh, I think the other piece that we want to convey to people is understanding your gross margin across every segment of your business that's clients, locations, service, channel type, all of those things. And that's really, really important when you, when you come to growth or an exit, right? If, if, if we're making, let's say, 50% gross margin on all of our clients, and then a new client comes to us and we're going to make 20% gross margin, should we really take that on, right, and diminish our margins going forward? And I think it's a difficult decision, you know, for a small contact center owner to make because everyone, you know, intrinsically in all of us, we want to grow. Right. right. But without an understanding of these numbers, we might say yes when we should say no.
0: And I think defining what growth really is, right? Growth for a lot of us is just headcount right, where growth should be profitability, growth should be probably revenue, looking at these numbers instead of just saying, hey, I have 500. I probably shouldn't even, you know, say, hey, welcome to advice from Call Center Geek, Expedia 600 seat. You know, we should probably almost be talking about maybe some of this stuff. But I think that that's a mentality from a BPO standpoint that it, that I think if anybody, if you take anything from this, I think is really, really important. And something that I wrote down too is, is really defining what growth is and, and and thinking that through a little bit more than just our you know, kind of that, that hey, I got this many headcount or this many seats.
1: You know, the two great business books that uh, have yet to be written are how and when to grow and how and when to shrink. Right. Right. But ultimately that comes down to a full understanding of the art and science of the business. Right. And here's a great one for you. Do you get the business first and then hire the people or do you hire the people and then get the business? I don't know if there's an answer to it. And I've asked a lot of friends of mine who are in different industries and they all come up with different answers. It each, you know, each decision has to come down to the individual owner, but without a full understanding of your benchmarks, historical and projected and what your goals are, it's a coin flip to whether you're going to make the right decision. And I think we can be better than that.
0: Can you, before we go on to the next slide, which I think is, is really interesting as well you and i talked for a while on and you just kind of touched on it but let's talk about from an exit standpoint the importance of just benchmarking each of your clients having you know not just this one pot of profitability or of revenue but really being able to you know discuss each client um kind of in depth and maybe where there's potential to growth or not or why this is this 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 margin is a little bit lower because i mean talking to you i know that there's there's some bpos that are doing that really well and some that that, that do not do it as much
1: yeah, fully understanding what at least your gross margin is on every client, every location, every segment of your business, channel of your business, service type is really paramount to understanding your business in whole, right? You've heard the old adage of the guy selling advertising, right? And the guy sitting across the desk says, look, son, my, I'm wasting half of my advertising budget every year. The problem is I don't know which half. Right. Right. Now, it's essentially the same problem. If I don't know at the end of the year how much money I made per each client, or at least the gross margin, then how do I responsibly renew those contracts or bid on contracts that look similar to those? One of the sad things we see from time to time in looking at these businesses is client concentration problem, right? It's the whale problem. You've got one client that makes up 40% of your business, and you have no idea if you're making money on them or not. Ultimately, through analysis, we typically find that your largest client is likely going to be your one with the lowest gross margin. So now you're in a situation where you can't live with them and you can't live without them. We like to tell some people sometimes, look, if you want a healthy call center, go fire your biggest client right now or tell them your rates are going up 20 percent. Because in the long haul, if you get everybody to pay the same freight, right, to give you the same gross margin opportunity, you're going to have an option, you know, long term to do a lot of different things with that cash. You can reinvest it in technology, you know, you can pay your employees a little bit more, you can find uh, you know more business development opportunities, you can do some things with that money, right? It's not you know a zero sum game here, right? Good means good long term, especially when you're getting adequate gross margin from each and every segment of your revenue. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we we obviously do that. We've had this discussion here at Expedia and, and and knowing each client. But I think I think we could probably drill down even deeper. I know that there was a question here too, you know, from Sean that was talking about you know breaking out even cost per call. You talked about supervisor, you know, those types of things, getting that granular um, with some of the stuff that I think you know we should be doing. Um, that I think could be extremely helpful to not even not even what we should go bid on, but then the operations of the call center and in the promotion of supervisors and, and, and what those those levels of, of pay should be as well.
1: Yeah, no question about it. I think I'm reading Sean's question here. I think cost per call, cost per acquisition, that's
0: probably
1: more on the, yeah. the advertiser side or the you know client side than the contact center side. It would be different. I mean it would be difficult through this large Um, aggregation of data to come up with a number that would be applicable, you know, cost per call and cost per acquisition would vary so widely depending on whether you're inbound, outbound, the nature of the industry that you're servicing. So we we don't have that data, but I totally agree with you, Sean, that that is important data.
0: And I think that that just, it does go back to the, you know, we can't benchmark and everybody does these benchmarks on KPIs and says, hey, your handle time should be three minutes and 32 seconds. When I'm, wow, okay. I have 14, 15, 16, 17 different clients with all different levels of of what they need that those don't mean as much, I think, as what we're doing here today does to to impact the business.
1: Yeah, and let me just circle back real quick to use a uh, overused cliche. Uh, You asked about acquisitions and gross margin, right? So a buyer is going to look at, I mean, essentially the buying process when one contact center or strategic or a financial buyer is buying a contact center, you're looking at the identification of risk, right? And the quantification of risk. Now we talked about client concentration risk, but we also want to talk about profit risk. The buyer, if they're worth their salt, is going to ask the seller, what's your gross margin per customer? You know, like we're talking about. And if they can't You know, if the seller can't tell the buyer that or show the buyer that empirically, then the buyer, it's left to the buyer to basically make some assumptions, which increases the risk, which ultimately lowers the value, right? If we reduce risk, we improve the value. If we have higher risk, we have lower value. Another element of that is let's say you've got, I don't know, five or six segments of your business and you want to move on from one of them. If you can't identify profitability of one of those segments, you can't sell it. So let's say, for example, you've got a successful outbound piece and you, you've got, you know, 20% is outbound and 80% is inbound. and You want to get rid of the outbound segment. Well, there's a lot of buyers for that. But if you can't measure profitability on that segment, it's very difficult to price it and ultimately get the value that you should from that particular segment.
0: Yeah, that, I think that makes sense. If you can't quantify it, then people start thinking things and they're never positive things for you. Uh, they're, they're, they're negative things for sure. Hey, before, again, I know I keep saying before we move on to the next slide, but just these things keep popping in my head. I know one of the biggest questions and and I probably should say this to the end, but since we are kind of talking about, you know, a BPOs being acquired and, and that's kind of the topic that we're on right now. Can you just give the, the, what you see as your your quick 30,000 foot view state of the BPO space uh, maybe talk about the multiples that you're seeing now. You know, I know there's some variation in that, but just just talk about that and then let's move on to the to the next slides um, and, and, and I think that will even maybe add some more breath to, to some of those slides.
1: Well, I mean the appetite for acquisition, growth through acquisition is you know, as strong as it's ever been, you know, even though interest rates have increased. Um, They're still pretty cheap, you know, six, seven percent money when you look at, you know, some type of weighted average cost of capital still, you know, relatively inexpensive to historical levels. Strategics want to buy, you know, smaller firms. I mean, for a number of reasons to expand their geography, to get into better locations from a hiring perspective, to grab you know, particular clients to look into different industries to you know maybe buy some things and look about nearshoring or offshoring them to reduce costs through technology. I mean, the growth by acquisition strategy is alive and well, and it will continue to be. Um, multiples really haven't changed. I mean, you know, our phones aren't going to stop ringing if the eight percent you know interest rate hits us by next week, right? I mean, they're just not. People need right. live voice, and there is no substitute in my mind, for live voice and live American English-speaking voice, right? It's the top live voice in the world for a reason, and it will continue to be that way. You know, I guess the nature of buyers has changed somewhat where we're seeing, you know, far more strategic buyers rather than private equity buyers. It's not a great private equity play, uh, even though I think a friend of mine who is in private equity might be on this call today it's difficult to grow the business, Tom, as you know, right? I mean, solely because where are the people, right? If you're in a market of Erie, Pennsylvania, it might be a different hiring environment than if you're in San Antonio, Texas. So growth is difficult. And that's traditionally what a lot of you know financial buyers look for is what's the growth, what's the run rate, how can I get this? With that said, there are a lot of financial buyers who are looking for platforms to buy and then bolt new acquisitions on. So, I don't think a lot's changed in terms of acquisitions. The multiples are all, you know, pretty healthy. Um, you know, depending on the nature of the business, you could go anywhere from, you know, a small outbound center with concentration risk might go for three times. If you get a really shiny uh, inbound, you know, no customer concentration, great industry, HIPAA, SOC 2, all of those things, it could go for, you know, six, seven times, depending on the vertical and the uh, profitability. But, again, that's 5 to $50 million you know, kind of once you get over 20, 30 million, the multiples, you know, invert a little bit and, you know, it looks a little rosier when you get to that level, but I don't see a whole lot changing.
0: Gotcha. No, I, pre- I appreciate that. I know that. I got I a couple of TikTok. I know you can't see that. There's a couple of TikTok questions on that. So I wanted to, you know, help out our, our TikTok viewers here? As well, well, everybody
1: wants to know, I mean, this is another unpublished thing, right? How much am I worth? Right. How much right. is my business worth? Well, I mean, there's, three ways to find that out. I mean, number one, you can go ask your bank for a loan and they'll tell you what your business is worth. That's probably on the low end, right? I mean, number two is you can, you know, ask someone like us in the business, you know, what do you think my company's worth? And we'll give you a ballpark. I mean, ultimately until we get under the hood and understand the narrative and the story and the people we wouldn't know. And then, and then the third thing is you go to the market and you let the market tell you what it's worth. All
0: right, let's move on to, I guess the, I think the heart of the benchmark, right? Um, and kind of looking at at some of the things that you've done here. Uh, I thought this was really interesting. Right. This is
1: second. your this is your quiz time. All right, I'm ready. I'm ready. See how well you listen. So, two companies, common sized income statements, kind of simplified for uh, viewing. Here we got Company A and Company B. I mean, you'll notice some pretty big difference in cost of sales, growth, profit, and net income. Um, Without getting complex, EBITDA is the operating statistic that we use in lower middle market uh, for valuation. So everything trades on a multiple of adjusted EBITDA. So if you're so going to those two companies, which one's yeah, better?
0: That's got to be the trick of this question, right? Because, I
1: don't
0: know. you know, I think everybody does look at that, right? And and there's always the saying, right? You're always kind of you, your eyes first go to that bottom line and then you kind of work your way up. Um and, and looking at this, I mean, if if you, if you I just look at this really quickly, I would say, you know, with with that EBITDA, you know, I would say that company B, um, you know, that would be my choice, at least looking at this from a quick snapshot of not really digging deep.
1: Yeah. So both of these are privately held companies. One transacted, one didn't. Company A actually transaction. Company B did not transaction because they had a significant client concentration issue. Right over, I think it was 70 or 60 or 70 percent of their Revenue came from one client. So Eric, even though, go ahead. I,
0: I'm sorry. Let me just talk t- talk about that for a second. So what what are the layers then? Like, what are the, what is the, the importance? Like, I mean, obviously concentration is really important, but like, what are the top three things that you're looking at? You know, maybe even outside of this that can affect this.
1: What do you mean outside of this?
0: Well, I mean, like you're talking about like the, the concentration of client, right? That's a huge piece that doesn't really show up in the numbers. Yeah. Um, But it's like, so what are some of those other things, too, that maybe not show up in the numbers that we're talking about here that kind of tag on with what you just said?
1: Yeah. So you've got a number of different risk elements. uh, If you're looking at this from a bankability perspective or an investment perspective, which would include acquisitions or dispositions. Right. Uh, The first and foremost would be client concentration. How do you derive your revenue? If it's all from one source, it's going to be highly risky if it's all from one industry and that industry, let's say mortgages, that's going to be risky, right? Because you're prone to changes in interest rates. Um, If you're diversified, you know, the more you're diversified in clients and revenue base and, you know, channels, service types, inbound, outbound, the more diversified you are, the less risk there is and the more valuable your firm would be. So that's number one. Number two would be, you know, you've got four really important people in your organization, mm-hmm. right? The people who man- the people have the relationship with the finances, the people who have relationship with the clients, the people who have relationship with the employees, and the people who have the relationship with the technology, right? If those four people will follow with the sale, it reduces risk. However, if it, let's say the owner who wants to depart or retire has two of those relationships, and the new buyer is going to have to replace those, then again, the risk element goes up. Um, I guess number three, you're looking at fluctuations in performance, uh, either rapid growth or rapid decline, changes in gross profit, changes in net income, you know, a period of unprofitability, a uh, period of EBITDA. Um, there's a little bit of a glance at the balance sheet, but those are kind of the main elements of what makes a firm bankable, investable, and determines risk elements.
0: All right, do you want to move on? You want to move on to the next one or
1: yeah. So what was your answer?
0: So I would again, you (laughs) I said at Company B, I think they're EBITDA, and then you kind of squashed that because they had a high, high concentration, right, of, of of customer.
1: And this is one thing to note about benchmarking, right? About vertical analysis. There's more to the picture, right, than just meets the eye. Just because you common size things doesn't necessarily mean A is better than B or B is better than A. Right? It's a part of the analysis. It's not the entire analysis, which will bring us to slide two. And this is where benchmarking can really throw you off. So this is the same company A, again, kind of reduced for simplification. And then we added a company C, which looks very similar to this. Now, you notice just a couple of differences there. Company A stronger net income, and company mm-hmm. C has lower net income. And then EBITDA, obviously, is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization the theoretically, you know, the non-cash charges or similar to a free cash flow. So company C would have more free cash flow in theory, company, than company A. So if you were to look and compare these two, how would you analyze it?
0: These guys are pretty close. Okay. <laughs> I think I need to get under the hood a little bit with these guys, Eric. Um, you know, I would I would probably say Um, that, that company a looks on paper here to be a little bit for me, especially with that net income being there a little bit more kind of palatable, at least just looking at these numbers.
1: And I'll say that concentration risk is minimized in both. And the growth rates are almost identical for the last four years. (sighs) I
0: mean, really, if you, if you look at it, these are extremely close, um, to, to, you know, to being the same. I mean, the EBITDA obviously, again, it's something that, again, I think every BPO person in the world has been kind of trained upon, right. To, to kind of look at and to maximize that number. But if, you know, all things being the same, I, you know, I, I think it's almost a coin flip, Eric. I mean, at yeah. least just this.
1: So again, this is where benchmarking can throw you off. Company A was a privately held company that we uh, sold a few years ago, $20 million in revenue domestically based. I don't know how many agents they had, but it was under a mm-hmm. thousand. Company C is Teletech.
0: <laughs> right. Okay.
1: <laughs> right. 2.4 billion in sales, right? Right, right. right around the world, quickly growing. So again, mm-hmm. looking at common sizing, you know, what it's used for and what it's not. I mean, I guess the good things here are, you know, some of our, you know, peer groups kind of look like Teletech, which is good, yeah. which means, uh, you know, Hey, if, you know, they're worth X billions and we're worth 20 million. We're, we're kind of doing similar things and we're doing it about the same way. Right. And the other the other way to look at it is, you know, company A will transact for, you know, five to six times adjusted EBITDA and Teletech at you know, 20 or 25 times EBITDA. So, you know, understanding how to apply vertical analysis yeah. is one thing. But understanding how that fits in the whole grand scheme of analysis is uh, certainly another.
0: And, and I think for what we're talking about today for the BPO owner and operator, you know, not getting down to the, you know, I'm looking to sell tomorrow. And we got to talk about all this stuff. But to start to think this stuff through, to, to really look at your numbers, I think that this is extremely helpful, um, you know, especially looking back to that that income statement at the beginning. Um, and looking at, you know, your your gross profit margins and seeing, again, how those levers work and, and maybe where you are off a little bit. And not to say that you're off because you could have different verticals, but to at least start to make you think about or take a peek deeper into kind of what's going on with with maybe a specific line item.
1: Yeah, so in our report, we're, we're going to give you you know, some of this data. And again, it's simplified for a reason, right? We don't want to get too, too far deep into the weeds here and do bad analysis and have any type of paralysis result from it. We're going to show you what the industry looks like, which to my knowledge hasn't been published uh, before. We're going to talk to you about the reasons why you should benchmark. And then Jeff Cohen from our team uh, is going to walk you through and how to get going on it, right? Ultimately, it's going to come down to a lot of your account- accounting policies and procedures and working in conjunction with your uh, accounting team, your finance team, your CFO, and your CPA. Once you get that done, Tom, I think it's important to incentivize your team to maximize a combination of operational efficiencies and financial performance. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying layer on a whole bunch of new you know, payroll or or wages. Let's get everybody rowing the same direction, right? With a wider dashboard of metrics. You know, if I were to ask you to drive your car and you've got nine dashes on your dashboard, well, which four or five can you live without? Mm -hmm. Right. Now, ultimately something's going to fail because you can't see those metrics. And what I just want everybody to do is just expand their dashboard, right? Understand that, you know, the ultimate synergy happens when you optimize operational KPIs and financial effectiveness. And that, you know, if you really think about it, all businesses sell, Tom, right? They only don't sell for two reasons. You know, number one, somebody dies before they can sell it. Or number two, they go out of business. But every other business that I know of will sell. If you're ultimately looking at achieving the highest valuation upon exit, it's very important. To marry operational efficiency with financial performance, and benchmark your results—not just historically but projectives.
0: All right, and guys, we have Eric again for another you know ten minutes or so. If you do have any questions, if you are on LinkedIn Live, you know shoot shoot some uh, shoot them off to me. Obviously on TikTok too. I'm getting a couple um, here as well. Um, a question for you—that's maybe a little outside the scope of this—but Eric, do you see any? From a BPO standpoint, any kind of unique business setups, like obviously we know the C corp and the S corp and the LLC, have you seen any kind of ESOP or, or employee owned type things in this market? That's a question here on, on from TikTok. Is there any kind of unique things that you've seen from the actual setup of the the operation? You
1: know, not really. I, I am not a, you know, a law or a tax professional. um, So I can't give you great guidance there. Predominantly, we see S-corps and LLCs, Mm -hmm. you know, it depends on what you're wanting to do, you know, with your particular business, whether you set up as one or the other. We typically don't see a lot of C-corps, which, you know, involves some double taxation, but maybe better off for raising capital. Um, You know, ESOPs are great tools, but really better off as an acquirer than a seller. Um, sure. You know, you rarely see ESOP sell. I mean, just for the nature of you've got, you know, 200 owners, which I think right. is a great thing. I mean, ESOP. Look, if we could represent an owner who wants to sell to an ESOP, I think that would be a wonderful transaction. Right. Mm-hmm. Instantly, everybody's a shareholder and people theoretically would be more concerned about, you know, the health and vitality of that organization.
0: Right. Right. Just kind of a it's kind of an interesting I, it's kind of cool to get again on TikTok and on LinkedIn and just the I think the different type of a viewer um, and the different perspectives on, on some of this stuff too. Um, for everybody, um, you know, Nathan here too, uh, Eric, just, you know, just a question on the report and let me throw it up here. So you don't have to get those glasses. I don't want to hurt you to hurt your eyes or anything. Um, <laughs> uh, hold on wrong. That was, let me throw this one up here first. Like, will, will this have everything that a specific buyer wants to see? Is this more for that? Or is this more for you think, us thinking about this and kind of setting up our books in a specific certain way.
1: Yeah. So one of the rationales for buying a business is to develop synergies, right? You've got cost synergies and revenue synergies. So cost synergies would be, you know, I'm hundred seats. You're hundred seats. We probably don't need 200 people. We can do with 180. There's a cost synergy. Uh, revenue synergy would be, you know, Hey, you're selling the bat and I sell the ball and the glove and we put them all together. We've got a ball game. Right? That'd be a revenue synergy. We work with, I don't know, you know, 70, 80 strategic buyers on a given basis and up to 300 financial buyers. Each buyer will have their own set of synergies, right? So uh, Nathan, the short answer to your question is our, I think our report's only 14, 15 pages. If I were to have a thousand pages, I'd list all the <laughs> synergies possible. But again, they're unique to each individual buyer, I mean, if you'd like, we can give you a laundry list of what the, you know, starting 20 or 25 questions are. But we've covered a lot of them in this, right? It's risk, identification and quantification of risk, where the company's been, where it's going. And then a lot of it comes down to, you know, the makeup of your firm, your individual DNA and, you know, how your kind of client roster has changed over the years and where it's going.
0: And Eric, th- th- this is from, from Sean. Have you seen any difference between valuations of a remote call center operation versus that traditional or, or kind of the, the hybrid model? Um that's a really good question for for I think where we are today.
1: Yes. Uh nah, maybe not necessarily in the valuations. Um it depends on a couple of things. If if you know you've got an on-prem contact center and they're required to be on-prem you know that's one thing if, if you have a, a contact center that is on-prem but mostly they do work from home it kind of depends on the length of the lease that they're going to try to get out of you know that could affect valuation again if it's after the deal significantly into the time to where the buyer would own it that's a, a synergy that the buyer would own but if it's kind of you know somewhere in the middle the seller may be able to own and value that synergy um I mean, the reality is work from home is probably here to stay. I know, Tom, you love that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, no, we really haven't seen it um, dramatically change valuations. Again, it kind of comes down to that cost energy, and whether, you know, the seller can realize it and include it in valuation or the buyer is going to realize it, you know, years down the road.
0: And, hey, guys, everybody that that is listening, I just, you know, Eric has agreed as well to. I think we've had a lot of success with with a lot of you, and we've had a lot of fun as well on on doing some LinkedIn audio events. Um, so I think you know early next week, once the the benchmark report comes out and and a lot of you get a chance to maybe digest it or, or take a peek, I'm sure there'll be some questions. Eric has agreed to um, to come on, and and we'll do whether it's a you know if there's three people there and we're we're done in five minutes, that's great. If there's a, a hundred of you and, and and we're there for a while, that's that's awesome as well. But if we can when answer a, a ton of your questions that maybe you would have if, if uh, you know, you, you don't you know, have them today or, or after you read that report. So, Eric, I will put the links to everything, you know, when we publish this, you know, today, tomorrow. But can you just, again, talk about or just give the URL of where they would be able to find this tomorrow, correct? Um, yeah,
1: hopefully it'll be up tomorrow. Just some programming uh, being done currently to get it up and uh, available for download. It'll be on GoComet. That's Go, K-O-M-M-I-T.com com on the front page. You know, again, probably just enter your email address, download the report. It's 14, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 pages, fairly um, easy to comprehend and understand. And we're available for questions. Um, you know, we're a, you know, pretty straightforward outfit. We, we're not a consultant. We don't bill fees. We we probably should set up a uh, an alternate business called Free Center Consulting.com. <laughs> yeah, but again, you know, the goal here is a little bit of curiosity from our perspective and then to publish this information so that, you know, the owners and operators out there in the lower middle market can use it in order to, you know, improve the health and vitality and, and growth potential of their firms.
0: And then, just last thing, too, Eric, if somebody does want to get a hold of you, email, LinkedIn, or anything like that, that you'd like to kind of throw out there.
1: Yeah, my email address, e c r o u s e at gocomet.com. And then uh, I tell you my LinkedIn URL, Tom, but I forgot it. But well,
0: just Eric Krauss with a C. That's C-R-O-U-S-E. it. That's Look it. Look them up. And then I'll have some of those links as well. Both. Hey, buddy. Thank you so much for doing this. I think, uh, you know, this is, again, like I said, even as you have given me this data, it has opened my eyes up. And also, I think validate a lot of things that we're doing here, which made me feel really comfortable that, you know, again, I I can talk with this with a lot of peers, um, but everybody, a lot of people are doing this so differently. So again, not to say one way is right or one way is wrong, but to have kind of, I think, some numbers that we can all kind of start to I don't know, maybe put our put our wrap our head around, I think is extremely helpful for the entire industry. Um, I'm excited to see what what you guys do with with that benchmarking survey. And and we are just really happy that we're kind of the first first uh, soiree to get the message out on on what you guys have done, because it's it's I know it was a lot of work, uh, but I think it'll be very valuable for the entire industry.
1: Yes, thanks, Tom. And, and Eric Hamilton and Jeff Cohen and our team were uh, really the, the hard drivers behind the project. We'll continue to roll things out as we uncover them. And look, Tom, information is power, right? If we all kind of share information, provide best practices, I think as a whole, the industry would be better off tomorrow than than it is today.
0: Awesome. And then just a little uh, shout out from Sean. Say thank you. This was excellent. Sean, I appreciate it. Thanks for the questions, too, buddy. Um, appreciate you. All right, thank you guys. That's pretty good. We're uh, we're an hour almost right on the nose. So uh, thank you, Eric, so much. And then, guys, uh, I'll I'll shoot some things out for next week. We'll bring Eric back and and do a little audio event after the uh, the report comes out. So if you guys have any questions, we can uh, we can address them then. Thank you, everybody. All right, Tom, thanks. Thanks, Eric.
1: See you.